This is KVR, Kaiju Vision Radio, Episode 51, Godzilla King of the Monsters, U.S. 2019. Kaiju and Tokusatsu fans, and welcome to Kaiju Vision Radio, a podcast about the appreciation of Kaiju and Tokusatsu movies and discovering their historical and cultural value. I'm Brian Scherchel. Just a small update before I get down to business. Next week, I will be at G-Fest. For those of you who don't know what that is, it is the convention for, specifically, Godzilla. In one panel at the convention, I have partnered with Taylor Hensley from Giant Monster Messages. The panel I have with Taylor is about alien invasion movies from Japan and America and how they're culturally significant, and we'll be comparing and contrasting them. I will also be on the panel for the Godzilla anime trilogy. In this episode, I will be covering the 2019 film Godzilla King of the Monsters, also known as Godzilla 2 King of the Monsters. This episode took a while to write. And I also wanted to give everybody the chance to be able to see the movie and uh, give it a lot of good thought. This is a thinking man's kaiju podcast, after all, and wow, have I overthought this one. It's a good one, though. I really like this movie. The related topic for this episode is eco-terrorism and climate change. As always, check the show notes for the time to skip to if you want to go to part two or part three now. Kaiju Vision is on YouTube as well. Subscribe and see all the episodes with original videos. A short description of the film is next. It is Kaiju Vision's unique, audience-focused method to arm the listeners with the facts. You're listening to KVR Kaiju Vision Radio. Godzilla, or Titanus Gojila, is an ancient apex predator, a heroic character, and a balancing force for Earth. In the graphic novel Godzilla Aftershock, which takes place between this film and the 2014 Godzilla film, he fought Muto Prime, or Titanus Jinshin Mushi, a forerunner to the Mutos Godzilla fought in San Francisco. He is primarily concerned with defeating his rivals, and he shows little regard for the collateral damage he causes. King Ghidorah, or Titanus Ghidorah, or Monster Zero, is a competing apex predator of alien origin using its connection to Earth's other titans to influence them to destroy Earth and recreate it in its image. Godzilla and Ghidorah have a historical rivalry too as they are depicted battling in ancient cave art. Mothra, or Titanus Mosra, is a benevolent titan who has a symbiotic relationship with Godzilla. Rodan, or Titanus Rodan, is a giant pteranodon capable of causing massive damage with the sonic booms generated from his wings. He emerges from his volcanic resting place and is influenced by Ghidorah's call. Other titans awakened include a female Muto, or massive unidentified terrestrial organism, Scylla, or Titanus Scylla, a squid-like creature with spider-like legs, Behemoth, or Titanus Behemoth, a titan resembling a woolly mammoth and a sloth, and Methuselah, or Titanus Methuselah, a giant-horned quadrupedal creature with the physical characteristics of a mountain. Kong, or Titanus Kong, remains on Skull Island. After Ghidorah's defeat, other titans begin converging on Skull Island. Mothra and Kong are the only two titans not affected by Ghidorah's call. Other titans are referenced only in tables in Monarch's database. 
Emma Russell is a grief-stricken paleobiologist at Monarch, a militaristic organization that monitors the Titans. Her goal is to release the Titans so that they cause a mass extinction of humanity, restoring ecological balance to Earth. She conspires with militant eco-terrorist Alan Jonah, who has declared humanity the enemy of Earth. She previously worked with her now ex-husband Mark Russell to develop the Orca, a device used to pacify and control the Titans through bioacoustic signals. Their daughter, Madison, is a capable and brave girl who empathizes with both of her parents. Dr. Ishiro Serizawa, an intelligent lead scientist at Monarch who empathizes strongly with Godzilla, deciding that Godzilla is the balance Earth has been searching for. The human and kaiju plots are unified, as nearly everything the humans do involves the Titans. King Ghidorah is the problem. After Ghidorah is released, it fights with Godzilla and then flies away. Monarch leaves Rodan to fight Ghidorah, but Rodan is no match. Godzilla then rips off one of Ghidorah's heads, but Ghidorah has the ability to regrow itself. The U.S. military then tries to eliminate Godzilla and Ghidorah with an oxygen destroyer missile, but it has no effect on Ghidorah, while Godzilla is badly hurt. Dr. Serizawa and Monarch are convinced that Godzilla has to be revived so that Ghidorah can be destroyed. Serizawa manually detonates a nuclear weapon next to Godzilla, reviving him. Madison sneaks away from her captors with the Orca and then activates it, causing all of the Titans to converge on Boston. Ghidorah arrives and chases Madison since she has the Orca. The Orca is damaged and Godzilla arrives to fight Ghidorah. Mothra arrives to assist Godzilla, but Rodan stops her. Mothra fights off Rodan and sacrifices herself, giving her life force to Godzilla, turning him into Fire Godzilla. The problem is solved when Fire Godzilla undergoes an overload from the nuclear weapon that revived him. The excess radiation and heat is released in a nuclear pulse, which kills King Ghidorah. The script by Michael Doherty and Zach Shields, based on a story by Michael Doherty, Zach Shields, and Max Borenstein, is a complex action thriller with an ensemble cast and several subplots. Ten writers in an organized writer's room contributed to the original treatment, which was created by Doherty. Godzilla was designed to be more empathetic to the audience. Special attention was paid to increasing the prominence of female roles, cinematic universe expansion, and on making the kaiju more godlike. The film is dedicated to Yoshimitsu Bano and Haruo Nakajima. This is the second of three Godzilla movies made by Legendary Pictures and the third film of the MonsterVerse. The budget of the film is estimated at $170 million, but could be as high as $200 million. It was produced by Legendary Pictures, its parent company Wanda Qingdao Studios, and Chinese investment firm and film marketing company Huahua Media. The promotional budget is estimated at $100 to $150 million. This is the first Godzilla movie ever made by a studio owned by a Chinese conglomerate. Special effects are supervised by Eric Frazier, who worked as a special effects coordinator on the previous American Godzilla film. Stuntman T.J. Storm mo-capped Godzilla as he did in Godzilla 2014. Actors Richard Dorton, Jason Lyles, and Alan Maxson mo-capped King Ghidorah. In post-production, state-of-the-art visual effects were created by moving picture company Dineg, Method Studios, Reynolt VFX, Rodeo FX, and Allen VFX. The soundtrack by Bear McCrary incorporates themes from Akira Ikafube's music. The film was shot using the Aria Alexa 65 and Aria Alexa Mini Digital Motion Picture Camera Systems and with Dolby Atmos Sound. This is a relatively dark film, but the tone does change due to humor in the human plot. It doesn't have as much gravity as Godzilla 2014, and the stakes are sometimes unclear. Unlike Godzilla 2014, this film contains many more fantasy elements usually contained in Toho Godzilla movies. 
The film is more cli-fi than sci-fi by concentrating on environmentalist issues and featuring extreme weather mainly caused by King Ghidorah. The film is experimental in that it feels like a classic Japanese Toho Godzilla movie at times. The film reinforces the style of Godzilla 2014 and Ghidorah, the three-headed monster from 1964. This is the first American Godzilla film to take after Japanese Godzilla movies enough to actually be considered a blend of American and Japanese style. The film looks at the monsters as characters, and Godzilla is considered a hero. There are similarities to Destroy All Monsters from 1968, which Kaiju Vision classifies as a reinforcement of the style of Invasion of Astro Monster from 1965. The film was intended for the summer blockbuster audience and kaiju fans. The film was greenlit following the successful debut of Godzilla 2014, directed by Gareth Edwards. The idea was to create a classic Toho-style Godzilla movie, only with a much larger budget. Director Michael Doherty said the film was meant to feature plenty of monster action while having characters that the audience cares about enough. He also said, I would call my movie The Aliens to Gareth's Alien, referring to the first two movies of that franchise. He also sought a balance between serious and fun moments in this film, like James Cameron's Aliens did. The film was released in the U.S. on May 31, 2019, in 4,108 theaters. It was released in Japan on the same day. It was distributed by Warner Brothers Worldwide and by Toho in Japan. It was available on IMAX 2D, Digital 3D and Real 3D, MX4D, and ScreenX formats in various theaters. The film made $47.8 million on opening weekend in the U.S., which is less than the earnings of previous MonsterVerse entries. It made $130 million in foreign markets on opening weekend, which was also below projections. In its second weekend, ticket sales dropped substantially in the U.S. domestic box office, down 67%. The worldwide box office total at the time of the recording of this episode is $371.4 million. 104.5 million of that is domestic, and 266.9 million is foreign. The film has made 131.6 million in China and 22.9 million in Japan so far. The estimated number of tickets sold so far in the U.S. is 11.6 million. It has a rating of 6.6 .6 on that movie database, with 47,767 votes at the time of the recording of this episode. It has a critic rating of 40% on Rotten Tomatoes and an 83% audience rating. CinemaScore audiences gave the film a B-plus rating. The film is enjoyed by the fanbase. There are a couple of forces at play. The movie sets up a conflict between humanity and Mother Nature, as one of the stated purposes of the film is to ask which the audience trusts more. This recollects the nature versus civilization conflict from past Godzilla movies. It turns the prevalent anti-nuclear versus use of nuclear weapons conflict on its head by using nuclear weapons in a positive context, namely by using one to regenerate Godzilla's power, and by having Dr. Serizawa use said nuclear weapon, and by introducing us to the concept of ecologically restorative radiation. With Emma Russell's speech and her unresolved grief, the film may be attempting to draw attention to the burgeoning mental health crisis in America. The primary theme of the film, as stated by the creators, is saving the environment. Godzilla is a balancing force that counters threats to Earth like King Ghidorah. The other titans have restorative radiation that helps heal the planet. The film makes a point of saying how we are subject to the whims of the titans and that humans are effectively Godzilla's pets. Theme machine Dr. Serizawa says, Sometimes the only way to heal our wounds is to make peace with the demons who created them. And, if we hope to survive, we must find ways to coexist with titans, with Godzilla. He also said, there are some things beyond our understanding, Mark. 
We must accept them and learn from them, because these moments of crisis are also potential moments of faith. The only question is what part we will play. That concludes part one. You're listening to KVR Kaiju Vision Radio. Part two of the podcast is the opinion and analysis section. I saw this movie on Thursday afternoon of the weekend that it opened, and I saw it in IMAX, and IMAX added to the great experience in the theater. I saw it three more times after that, all in regular 2D. This movie kind of seems like the Dairy Queen of Godzilla movies. Because I'm not fast food, I am fan food. (laughs) I really like this movie. Each of the four times I saw this in the theater, I took notes. Then on some of the more critical reviews of this movie, I looked through the comments. People were saying stuff like, Godzilla movies are supposed to be bad, what's your problem? Supposed to be bad? And what have I been doing here this whole time at Kaiju Vision, elevating these movies, even the ones I've been critical of, except Godzilla 98, which I had nothing good to say about? These criticisms of King of the Monsters that have been brought up need to be addressed. I've been watching the box office results this past month, I've read all the reviews, I've watched the fanbase reactions, and I've analyzed this perhaps too much. But that's what I'm supposed to do. I've done this in many episodes by now, and I've thought more about this all month than just about anything else. As I said in the introduction, this movie underperformed, but it assuredly did not bomb. The domestic box office was low, but the overseas market, since Godzilla is a worldwide phenomenon, has gotten this movie a lot of revenue. The last movie that actually bombed in the Godzilla series was 2004's Godzilla Final Wars. That movie had trouble making its own budget back. This actually fared better than a lot of other movies that came out this year. Kaiju Vision Radio could be looked at as a blueprint for critics for how to understand Godzilla. Critics should listen to this show and learn how to appreciate these movies while honing their critical eye on what they're supposed to be paying attention to. However, a lot of critics that apparently so hated this movie, they like Shin, Skull Island, and Godzilla 2014. All of this hype and the marketing campaign and the social reaction embargoes and the Screen Rant articles, all that stuff, it just made me feel like this whole movie took forever to get released. Like, it, it was such a long time. It was, I think it's about two years, but it felt like three, four I totally understood the hype, but at the same time, I started getting a little bit mad. It's just like, just get this over with. I want to see it already. But I'm expecting the American movie industry to do things differently, and that's not how it works. That's totally unrealistic of me to expect that. This is a different kind of product than Godzilla 98, though. This is, though, a product of the American movie industry as it is right now. But there are some criticisms out there that I really didn't think would ever come up. So... When I walked out of this movie the first time, the big burning question inside my mind was, who edited this movie? I wish I could have seen the full version of this, because I know I would have thought it was better, and I think the critics probably wouldn't have said as much. I think the audience wouldn't have minded the longer time either. I'm not as thrilled about what this theatrical version is, but I'll tell you why. There is something about a great story, though. I like a great story, no matter what it's about. If it's good, I don't care what it's about. Because I can admire it, how it gets the mechanics right, and how it made a connection. I can appreciate all kinds of movies, so long as the story's great. 
To start with, I'll mention some positive things. Thank you so much, Michael Doherty, for being respectful of Godzilla and for respecting the fan base and for being largely faithful to the spirit of Godzilla. Thank you for not being like Roland Emmerich or Dean Devlin. You gave us a lot of what we wanted to see in an American Godzilla movie for so very long. We got the monster fights, we got the universe building, and the CGI, and the very fact that it's another big-budget Godzilla production is wonderful for the fandom and for the franchise. This film did so much better than Godzilla 1998 in the eyes of critics and viewers. Just like Godzilla 2014, Shin Godzilla, and Kong Skull Island did. This movie is by far the most Toho magic of any non-Japanese Godzilla movie to date. I absolutely love that. Especially regarding the monsters, but also involving plot mechanics and story setup, referencing the style of a number of other Godzilla movies. I mostly like the arrangement with Godzilla movies where America makes money-infused CGI movies that are lacking in story, while Japan makes movies that are 120th the budget and yet are full of artistic and literary vision. Japan gives us the philosophy of Godzilla, the true vision of Godzilla as a god of destruction. America gives us genuine Hollywood creations, visually exciting with heart-pounding action, much of it incredibly overproduced. Imagine if Shin and the anime movies didn't exist and we just had MonsterVerse. Imagine if there were no Japanese anything coming out in the Godzilla franchise from Japan. It would feel like something was missing. If Japan just gave up, it would be unthinkable. I know it would be a loss. Conversely, imagine if Shin in the anime trilogy was all we had and that there wasn't a MonsterVerse. Think of what that would be like. It would feel like there's an incredible, huge something missing. Godzilla King of the Monsters is an extremely good treatment of the monsters and how they fit into the cinematic universe. They are faithful and appropriate. And I don't want to just take that for granted because that's very important. Like imagine if they had gotten that wrong. I love all of the designs and the concepts. The monsters are well-drawn characters. It's fabulous. Since Ghidorah, originally created by Tomoyuki Tanaka, is my favorite kaiju of all, I want to talk about him. It. I love the devil imagery and the devilish design. There's plenty of the classic look still going on, and it's faithful to the look that the fans want. I was never happy with the Monster X and that take on the three-headed monster from Final Wars. I love how the three heads each have their distinct and unique personality traits, it adds more detail to an already well-drawn character in this movie. We see some incredibly great visuals of Ghidorah in this. This is the best rendition of Ghidorah since at least 1991, which is going on 30 years. If this movie botched any of the kaiju, it wouldn't have registered so well with the fan base at all. They got that right. The part where Ghidorah goes all electric, that is a stunning visual that's incredible to behold. My favorite shot in the whole movie is when Ghidorah is lifting Godzilla into the sky to drop him. It looks like they're in the center of this hurricane that Ghidorah has created, and the clouds look incredible. It looks like pictures taken from near the eye of well-developed tropical cyclones. That moment and that visual was unbelievably incredible. Thank you so much for that. 
I love when they go back to the classic monster noises, especially Ghidorah's bitty 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 sound that was originally made by using a bell in the classic movies. I like the design of Godzilla in this movie, with the dorsal plates on the back looking the way they did from the 1954 movie. I like the modified roar that is more in keeping with the classic sound. However, I like the individuality of the Godzilla 2014 sound and design too. The part where Rodan eats the Air Force pilot who ejects is fantastic. Dr. Elaine Chen saying Ghidorah correctly is great. Her getting frustrated with them and saying Ghidorah is wrong just to please them is great too. Dr. Elaine Chen too, when she says shut up Rick, that's fantastic. Alan Jonas saying we don't have time for this is great because we don't. Just having the monsters running around with no explanations, that would have been a bad idea quite possibly. The audience has to know what's going on. We at least got to have a movie that explains to the entire audience what these monsters' motivations are. Rodan not so much, but he's a character who appears to side with either. At least we knew what was going on, even though sometimes things didn't make sense occasionally with what you're looking at if you're just a casual viewer. I really love the soundtrack for this movie. I mean, everybody's talked about this ad nauseum already. The right soundtrack at the right time. I love the Buddhist musical motifs in Ghidorah's theme music, especially too, at times. It's much more of an action-based soundtrack, and it's a great addition to the Godzilla music library. There are times, though, where the sound overpowers the music, which is interesting. Kyle Chandler plays Mark Russell. No, not the piano-playing political comedy personality from PBS, the other one. I liked him a lot in the 2005 King Kong movie and most of the other roles that I've seen him in. And he's great in this, too. The script for this is not like Godzilla 98. But the characters have these moments where we're going through, Dougherty said this himself, he said you have to go through the list of ensemble actors and you have them chime in as we sort of call their name out almost. I'll address Emma Russell later. She's almost universally referred to in reviews and other shows and stuff as the Vera Farmiga character or Vera Farmiga's character. Charles Dance, I'm saying his last name how he says it, He's a fantastic actor, and he has a great character in this. Good character motivations. I mean, Emma Russell's crazy in her own little special way, but Alan Jonah is evil. He knows what he wants, and he doesn't care if Ghidorah is the tool to get what he wants. Meanwhile, Emma disagrees with him. Alan Jonah is kind of like the evil capitalist in some of the old Toho movies, although he's a darker version of them. I enjoyed Charles Dance as Tywin Lannister especially as well, in Game of Thrones. Zi Zhang, who plays the new Mothra twins. I really like her and the job that she does in this movie. Like Charles Dance, I've seen her in movies before. I saw her in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and she was fabulous in that. I like how Dr. Rick Stanton is designed after Rick Sanchez from Rick and Morty. Even though I watched Rick and Morty, I, I didn't put it together watching the movie. But once I read that it was that reference, I understood it totally. The drink a lot part is the biggest character trait, seemingly, along with the first name, which is translated over from that, obviously. When I made a bunch of diagrams of these movies, the videos on YouTube, and it's all about which movies follow the style of what other movies in the Godzilla series, I said, Destroy All Monsters isn't its own style. It takes after Invasion of Astro Monster. 
or Monster Zero, that movie. This film takes after Destroy All Monsters, but not as much as it takes after Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster, which is the first Ghidorah film. This is the first movie made in America. I said Godzilla 2014 took after King Kong 1933 and Monsters, the film Gareth Edwards did before he did Godzilla 2014. If you haven't seen the prequel graphic novel for this, it's pretty good. It gives some of the background on the relationship between Alan Jonah and Emma Russell. God, there are a lot of first-name, first-name names in here. He gives her a line about how humans are the real monsters. And that's possibly the turning point in the evolution of her thoughts that later cause her to do what she does. This movie also reminds me of Godzilla Raids Again, only made for current times. We have by-the-numbers, monster fights, lots of necessary stuff that has to happen. And Godzilla Raids Again, that's the original Godzilla sequel, right? It's extremely different from the original. There's a nice parallel between this movie and Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah from 1991. Alan Jonah wants to level the playing field by releasing the Titans and restoring the natural order. In Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah, the time terrorists want to level the playing field by destroying Japan, thereby stopping Japan from becoming a dominant world power. This movie also reminded me of GMK at times, especially with the underwater vehicle that Serizawa ends up in. I also like in this movie how the monsters are personified, kind of like Shinto Kami. And if you want to go learn more about Shinto, there's the episode about the three treasures that is on Kaiju Vision that learns all of you about that. I also like the little touch of how Rodan bows to Ghidorah and to Godzilla, and the bowing at the end, although this is pretty silly, I think Tsuburaya might have done such a thing if he was still alive. I also noticed Zi Zhang in this movie. She looks like Megumi Odaka. Serizawa's role is very much reversed in this movie compared to Godzilla 1954. He's trying to come to terms with his demons and how nukes are necessary to help Godzilla and therefore save the world. It's almost like the whole switching the nuclear thing on its head, it's almost like it was genius and rather ridiculous at the same time. When I was thinking about the choice for Boston, for the final location for this movie, I figured the choice is pretty easy. We need, if we need someplace close to DC, and we don't want to do New York City because Godzilla 98 did that already, so how about Boston? There aren't really many tall buildings there, though, and... The iconic ones are mostly low height, but maybe that's good because we want the monsters to not be dwarfed by large buildings. So maybe if we're trying to emphasize the size of the kaiju, then we don't want big, giant skyscrapers taller than them. Did you see how Michael Doherty said that he could have possibly wanted to make this movie into two movies and then include all the stuff that's in it? That would have been pretty epic to have a two-parter Godzilla movie like that? There is enough in this movie, if you add the stuff that was cut, there's enough to make two movies. Getting back to the movie Rampage. Like Rampage, this movie has a biosonar kind of thing as a way to get the monsters to go where they need to go. Bioacoustics. But this is an issue in kaiju movies. How do you get the monsters to go where they need to go? In Godzilla 2014, the monsters are converging on a location, the shore of a continent, and they're attracted to nuclear materials. In Godzilla vs. Gigan, for instance, 
the cockroach aliens call Ghidorah and Gigan to Tokyo to start destroying Earth, and Godzilla goes to them because he hears the tape being played too. In Destroy All Monsters, aliens deliberately free the monsters and deploy them to destroy the world's capitals, and then there are all these objects that emit radio signals that are hidden all over the world, and they have a range on them. And their base on the moon also has a device that emits a radio signal that controls the monsters. So this is just another way to get the monsters to do what they're needed to do. Bioacoustics sounds great. Sounds like a good word. Let's use it. And in America, climate change is a political debate. And in a lot of countries, it is not. So Hollywood making a movie with this in it, not too surprising. Pacific Rim Uprising and Godzilla King of the Monsters are quite similar. They're both made from Legendary, both after they were bought by the Chinese conglomerate Wanda. There are two really odd twists that make the audience go, huh? They're both shot relatively similarly, and a prominent Japanese character gets killed in both. One in a helicopter crash slash explosion, and one in a nuclear explosion slash suicide mission. And then Tokyo gets destroyed in Pacific Rim 2. Anyway. Regarding the Bechdel test, Vera Farmiga said that this was maybe the first Godzilla film to pass the Bechdel test. She said that instead of the 2014 Godzilla film, which centered on a father and a son, this one centers on a mother and daughter. The Bechdel test came from an alt-feminist comic that was not seriously academic at all, but it has turned into a big deal in Hollywood. The test is, the movie has to have at least two women in it, they have to talk to each other, and it has to be about something besides a man. And Godzilla King of the Monsters does this right out of the gate, with the exchange between Emma and Madison. I noticed this immediately the first time I saw the movie because I had seen this article that had the quote from Vera Farmiga about the Bechdel test. It was very obvious the first thing this movie wanted to do was jump through this hoop. On the other end of the spectrum is Son of Godzilla, which is a sausage fest and one 17-year-old young woman. Along with Godzilla vs. Megalon, which is even more so which features one woman for a few seconds. So just because there's a woman in a movie, or just because two women in a movie talk about a man, that doesn't pass the test. Only half of all movies ever made ever reportedly do pass the test. Screenplay writing software now actually have programming that look at the gender representation of the screenplay as you're writing it. I feel like this movie might have been rigorously gone over with gender representation analysis, which is why I mentioned the Bechdel test. A lot of the critics, though, they missed the mark. I'm not going to say who said these things, but one critic referred to the studio that makes Godzilla as Tojo Studios. I, there's another article I saw, and it had Togo Studios. The thing that most critics might not have a handle on, though, is that there are different types of Godzilla movies. As this show has demonstrated, some Godzilla movies take after previous Godzilla movies stylistically. Every episode, I've decided what's going on with the style of this Godzilla movie, what it does, what it follows in the tradition of. 
some of them started stylistic trends of their own. There's not one stylistic trend to follow. There are many. And I think they're trying to go back to the first one and compare it to the very first one. A lot of critics know and understand the basics of the 1954 Godzilla movie. They understand the theme, etc. But they have less of an understanding of what makes a great Godzilla sequel. Let alone the many characteristics of typical Godzilla sequels, which is what this movie has. They think by learning about the first one that prepares them for the sequels, when that just isn't the case. I would like to believe that the reasons for the critical non-success of the film can be attributed to structural issues. Script, shot selection, cinematography, editing, pacing, and tone. Critics look at all of these things. I'd also note that the reason for the way things look in this movie can be found in the way Hollywood does its business. Trends and fads and movie making, and of course, global marketing. Now I'm going to say something about Godzilla vs. Megalon. It costed the franchise dearly. It could have been stopped from being so overexposed, but Toho was too late when they realized the mistake that they were making and what was going on, because everybody was using bootleg versions of this, and it was everywhere. And people ask me why I don't care very much for Megalon. I don't really hate Megalon or the movie or particularly that, but it's what happened, what, how it kind of degraded the brand, I think. And why do people associate Godzilla with, like, dumb, cheesy wrestling matches and stuff? In the introductory episode, I said how there are a lot of people who are missing the details. It's movies like Godzilla vs. Megalon, though, that got overexposed so much in the United States, and it did a lot of damage. Godzilla 1985 could have been way worse if it weren't for Raymond Burr helping. Runs of Godzilla movies in Japan for the Showa, Heisei, and Millennium movies generally had less ticket sales as they went on. Now, that's not a perfect trend, but it's a common thing. It's not a surprise, so let's not get panicky about box office or whatever. I think it's, everybody's been going after it too much. The studio executives looked very closely at that three-day opening weekend box office figure, though. Yes, there's later on streaming and disc sales on top of the remaining weeks in the theaters, but the primary concern for this movie and all other movies in America is butts in those seats on the first weekend. If you don't know all these familiar tropes and references from and to previous Godzilla movies, you won't be as excited though, will you? If you didn't read the prequel graphic novel before this, you don't have as good of a picture of the story either, although there isn't anything terribly necessary, though, that you missed. But I did read it, though. It was interesting. Regular audiences, though, aren't going to get all these kaiju movie references, so they're going to see something a lot different than what kaiju and Godzilla fans see. And also, there's just not as big of a baseline interest in Godzilla in this country, and that's undeniable. It's a smaller audience. It's not tiny, but it is a smaller audience compared to, say, Marvel, etc. The Godzilla convention is comparatively small compared to conventions for other interests and franchises. This wasn't supposed to make money as a lot of the huge Marvel movies. This movie, along with 2014 and Skull Island, are getting more Americans interested in the franchise, though, and this movie will not harm that progress. Let's go over the figures, though. Three-day totals. King of the Monsters... 47 million, domestically. Kong Skull Island, 61 million. Godzilla 2014, 93 million. 
For the audience figures, in the three-day for King of the Monsters, 76% of the audience were men, 24% women. 59% of the men were over the age of 25. King of the Monsters was originally shopped to studios at about $230 million, although the industry experts now say it was 170 probably maybe up to $200 million for this one. On opening night, on Thursday in the United States, that was $6.3 million. And by the way, that Thursday $6.3 million is not counted in the three-day box office. So in other words, the first time I saw this movie, it didn't count towards the three-day. A lot of the most diehard fans went on Thursday, too. And there's been a lot of talk of the aggregate critics' score on Rotten Tomatoes. And here are some more very interesting figures. Shin Godzilla, 86% critics, 74% audience. 86, 74. Godzilla 2014, 75, 66. Kong Skull Island, 75 critics, 69 audience. All three of these other Godzilla and MonsterVerse movies have a higher critics rating than the audience score. King of the Monsters, 40% critics, 83% audience. So it's the highest audience score of these four movies and the lowest for the critics. But as more non-fans see King of the Monsters and rate it, the audience score and possibly the IMDb rating could go down a little bit more. Probably not much. I would say the audience score for King of the Monsters will be comparable with the last two entries in the Monsterverse. 65-70 on the average, realistically. I don't know if it's going to go that much lower. It might not. Hopefully not. So, what about Godzilla 98? 16% critics, 28% audience. 16-28. So, no... King of the Monsters didn't do all that bad. This figure is even more interesting, though. Godzilla Final Wars. What do you think the numbers for that are? 40% critics, 70% audience. That sounds familiar. So 40% critics, same number as King of the Monsters, 70% audience, 83 right now. That's pretty close. So that's what kind of a movie we have, at least as far as the ratings go. So that's revealing. It's a fan film, like Final Wars. And you know what? Even before I looked up Final Wars and what those two numbers were, I sort of guessed what Final Wars would be. And I thought, uh, low, lower critic, higher audience. Yep. The idea, though, that critics have a huge problem with Godzilla itself, though, I don't think that's true because these critic scores for the other MonsterVerse movies and Shin were all pretty good. Godzilla and MonsterVerse movies going back five years are rated fresh. Also, the thing about the critics being bribed and stuff, if the critics were bribed to give this a bad rating, then who bribed them with these other movies to give them good ratings? I'll continue with some more figures. The director's cut of this movie was 2 hours and 40 minutes to 2 hours and 45 minutes. He referred to it as Godzilla the miniseries. He said a few whole scenes were taken out, 6 to 8 full scenes, and he said some of them will be on the Blu-ray when it comes out. And so, with a large cast, you've got a lot of lines. And the more cast members, the more time your movie's going to be. He says you'd be surprised by how much you can cut just by cutting a line here or a word there. 
No, I'm actually not surprised because I noticed that this was done. You can tell. 34 minutes were cut from the director's cut of this. If you do enough cutting and you have three editors on this film, yeah, at what point does the movie start suffering? At what point does it become detrimental? And you saw a different movie than the critics did because you're Godzilla fans. That's an obvious difference. That's why every episode of the show, in the film description, I say what the fandom thought about this movie. Also, the test audiences saw a different movie than the rest of us did. A lot of their warnings weren't resolved enough, though. But here's the thing. We all saw a different movie than what was originally made. It was much longer, and there was a lot of this movie that was cut by these three different editors. I'd really love to know the inner workings of the story of the editing of this film. Michael Doherty said that the three-hour cut of this film dragged. The final version that we saw was two hours and 11 minutes. So there's a lot of footage out there that we didn't see. There are a lot of movies, though, where stuff is cut out of them. That's not abnormal, but the thing is, what's the critical mass of the stuff that you cut? And how much does that affect things? Because when you're cutting the movie, you're cutting the screenplay, too. But here's what I'm driving at. And the director even said this. The editing process is where this movie is really made. The editing process was where the odd pacing and lack of tension likely originate from. So here's more on the three editors thing. First is Bob Doucet. He edited Godzilla 2014, The Mummy, The Mummy Returns, Looper, San Andreas, Star Wars The Last Jedi, and Rampage, among others. Second is Roger Barton. He edited World War Z, the original Gone in 60 Seconds, Pearl Harbor, Star Wars Episode III, The Revenge of the Sith, Aragon, as well as four Transformers movies, Revenge of the Fallen, Dark of the Moon, Age of Extinction, and The Last Night. He also edited Terminator Genesis. The average shot length of World War Z is 2.5 seconds. Finally, we have Richard Pearson. He edited Kong Skull Island, Justice League, Maleficent, Iron Man 2, United 93, Rent, Men in Black 2, The Score, and most importantly, in my opinion, Quantum of Solace, the Bond film, and The Bourne Supremacy. The average shot length in Quantum of Solace was 1.8 seconds. The Bourne Supremacy had an average shot length of 1.9 seconds. This movie, I'm not sure what the average shot length is. I'd say it's on the lower side compared to a lot of other Godzilla movies, though. We don't get to look at things for very long, or at least as long as I would like. But if you're wondering why this movie was cut the way it was and why it looks the way it does, that's your explanation, is we have at least two editors who are really into the whole low shot length. Michael Doherty said that the challenge was balancing monster spectacle and creating characters that the audience cares about. Well, in the uncut version of this movie, he may very well have done that, because the characters in the ensemble Monarch cast, as well as the Russell family cast, would have been more fully developed. I conjecture that the real challenge that Doherty had was getting past the three editors. As much as this was cut down, it feels sped up, and that's where we're headed here. 
I believe the editing process could have been chaotic and there could have been too much pressure to jam things all together, resulting in this odd pacing and seeming lack of build-up to certain events in the movie. Some have described this Godzilla movie as being made for people with ADHD. I know what they mean when they're saying that, despite the arguable lack of sensitivity to people with mental illnesses. Sort of like when somebody says, I am so OCD, or whatever, insert mental illness. And they have very little idea what that really means at all. But what people mean when they say this, though, is that the movie has a lack of focus. The center of gravity moves around too much. Lack of narrative focus. The story jumps around, concentrating on one thing one minute and something else the next. It's more than action. It's hyper. Lots of people yelling their lines intensely. There's also lack of focus in the camera work. I know some of the time that the intention was to show the scale of the monsters. And I think Godzilla 2014 did a good job of doing that, too. But this has more extreme examples of that. I cannot explain, though, why there are so many strange mid-shots and quite a few rather baffling close-ups. And I wondered, why are you zooming in on that in particular at this very moment? And why are the mid-shots plentiful, yet they sometimes don't contribute to seeing much of anything? The cinematographer for this movie had mostly done work for comedies, Garden State, and the Hangover trilogy. But I think the editors had to do something with the selection of shots and the order of the shots. Next, I'll get to the weather. Look at all we've got. We've got a blizzard. We've got hurricanes. Mothra's inside a waterfall. The darkness is a big factor, too. And then there are underwater scenes. There's sort of lots of things in the way, which it frustrated me a little bit after a while. I've mentioned darkness in other kaiju movies, and it looked nice because the classic Toho darkness was sort of like a navy sort of color, but this is just black. This technique of using the weather and all that was perhaps used so that it could hide some of the imperfections in the CGI. Unfortunately, I can only think of one other Godzilla movie that did this so much, and that was Godzilla 98. But it was just frustrating. I like daytime kaiju battles. I like seeing more and not less. I don't know. But it's odd that Hollywood spends $200 million on a movie, and the script and what people say is ridiculed as a first draft. But Hollywood does this. Some critic and even audience reviews have mentioned the cinematography is murky, dark, incomprehensible. One review said it looked like parts of it were shot through an Instagram filter. Plenty of complaints centered around the kaiju battles just having so much stuff in the way. I can understand doing this sometimes. I understand that other kaiju movies have done this. But I feel like this was done a little too much. Also, with this much money going into a Godzilla movie and into visual effects, it should look a little better than that. Yes, the kaiju bring weather with them wherever they go now, yeah. But I'd like to still have not so many things in the way. So how are some movies made in America? Well, they're a list of action scenes and other things that make up the list. The we need to have this list for the movie. Which, that can end up getting pretty long. So you make the story, and then you fit it into all of these requirements. And that's all fine and good to make movies this way, but you have to know that you risk not having an overarching, cohesive story. And the Japanese movies, Shin Godzilla and the anime trilogy, had much more of this, much more of an overarching, big story that's more ordered. Michael Doherty said that the test audience process was painful, nerve-wracking, too many test screenings, only half-joking. 
He said they went really well. They don't think the test screenings are super dependable. It's not written in stone that you have to fix this and that or the other. He said that the test screenings improved as they went on. He said the first act was too laggy, over-explaining things like what kaiju are and too much of the basics. Did anybody else see about what the early test screenings said, though? This had to have concerned the executives and the production staff. They were mostly positive, but the more critical ones were a predictor as to what the critics said when the movie came out. One reviewer said, Several aspects of the movie fell flat. The emotional core of the movie isn't believable, and the stakes are vague at times. The action is pretty exhausting. It felt tonally confused and not confident in the direction it was going. I don't know if that's from the writing or if it has to do with the executives intervening. The movie definitely takes more of a focus on the human characters, none of whom are all that likable, unquote. One forum post read, Apparently the consensus from an early test screening is that the story is kind of dumb and the characters are a bit boring, but the monster fights are huge and epic and most of the focus is on those fights, unquote. So when I read this, I thought, they have some time still and they could try to fix some things in that window. This early feedback from test audiences ended up being really close to what the critical feedback that came back when the movie was released. Legendary Studios the main criticisms about Legendary Studios are that Legendary executives make bad and expensive decisions and that the films they make lack heart, all glitzy but not very big of an impact once the movie is over. Jeff Goldstein, the president of domestic distribution at Warner Brothers, said finding new audiences is a challenge and a goal for this movie. The studio was reportedly let down by the performance of the movie at the crucial weekend box office. Goldstein continued, saying, The movie is dependent on broadening beyond just the fan base. Unquote. Regarding Legendary Pictures, though, I'm not committed to the MonsterVerse forever. Toho has increased its presence in America at its office, and Godzilla is a great piece of IP. It's not necessary to stick with the MonsterVerse and Legendary. There are plenty of other options, and obviously Toho should play the field and do what they think is best. Here's a reservation that I have about Legendary. It was purchased by a Chinese conglomerate, Wanda. It is the biggest acquisition of an American media company by a Chinese firm. From 2000 to 2016, Legendary was an independent American movie studio. Did I ever think a Chinese-owned movie studio would be making Godzilla movies? No. I don't mind that movies like this are marketed heavily to Chinese moviegoers, but I would rather not have a Chinese-owned company making them. I just don't know if this arrangement is optimal. Toho will be creating its own Godzilla universe starting in 2021. What are we looking at in the future? Possibly lower budgets. Because given how much it made, and it had a little bit of a rough landing... There isn't justification for doing another movie that's this expensive. I'll do a little bit of cultural anthropology about this movie, just because I do it a lot with Japan. There is a rather American take on nukes in this movie. It's rather a pro-nuke message, really. There's also quite a bit of U.S. militarism, where the military comes in with the oxygen destroyer and everything. And also, in this movie, Godzilla is actually part of the natural order. I do understand, and that's not a bad direction to go. 
But considering he was created by nuclear weapons, Godzilla is actually better thought of as unnatural. Also, aren't radiation and nuclear bombs, like, bad? Like, isn't that a huge part of what Godzilla is? Like, even if you've never seen a Godzilla movie in your life, you know that. This is a rather America-centric movie, too. The American military ends up taking things over practically by the end. One of the areas of study that I did in school was comparative politics. And if you're on the outside looking in, this is a relatively nationalist American movie. The military is all over the place. Monarch is the most heavily armed multinational organization on Earth, quite possibly. Decisions are made by the military, such as the Oxygen Destroyer, and there really aren't any worldwide voices involved in, in this decision-making. In Destroy All Monsters, that was more about the United Nations and world cooperation, even though Japan and its technological and scientific progress gets plenty of attention in that film. In this American movie, though, nukes are treated as tools, and not like the way they're treated in many other Godzilla movies. The planet-healing radiation is a very American concept as well. I sort of wonder what some of the Japanese people watching this thought. In the MonsterVerse, nuclear weapons are treated as food for Godzilla and other kaiju like the Mudos. Hollywood is kind of doubling down on the pro-nuke aspects of Godzilla 2014, which was balanced a lot because of the nuclear accident at the beginning being clearly anti-nuclear. I realized after a while that the things in this movie that I have reservations about are things American and or international movie studios do today in general. And those aren't going to stop me from enjoying this movie, because I enjoy it a lot. Remember that in this show, I've been covering movies that were mostly made before I was born. And you know I love classic movies. I like German expressionist cinematography. I like Hitchcock, David Lean, Kurosawa, Martin Scorsese. In other words, I know what I like, and I know what to look for. But I also know what I want in a Godzilla movie. In this show, I've mostly liked the Showa and Millennium series movies, kind of iffy on the Heisei movies, totally destroyed Godzilla 98, and we liked Shin and the anime trilogy. I thought Godzilla 2014 was okay. I was lukewarm about some of the Heisei movies because of the story and the cinematography that looked like a TV crew from a 1990s Japan TV show was filming it. I think the cinematography at times held the movies back in the 90s. But that's Japan in the 90s. That was the way the industry worked back then. I came down hard on Godzilla 98, its lack of understanding about what Godzilla even is, and most of all, the screenplay, which is one of the worst ever written by anyone. It's absolute, toxic waste. Some of the critics said that there was too much monster action or whatever in this. I think you'd have to be nuts to say that, but, but this movie, it's not less humans, more monsters. It's more humans, more monsters. It's not too much monster action. If anything, it's too much human stuff going on. And the movie doesn't know what it is sometimes in that respect. I finally found a review that actually said this. It said, have more monster fights and cut the exposition. It's from the New York Post. Johnny Olikinski is the author. He also latched on to something other reviews didn't mention often, and that's the whole deal with Emma Russell being a, you know, Bond supervillain or whatever. If you're going to do a movie like this, here's my idea, though. If you're going to bother much with the human plot, make those parts shorter. 
if you're making a movie that is strictly for the monster crowd, maybe not make it as long. Have the monster action nice and tight, have more continuity in the monster battles. If the human plot doesn't matter, don't have as much of it then. Cut down the size of the cast, make the story more intimate and simple. Shin Godzilla wasn't a monster brawl movie, but it wasn't meant to be. It was in the style of the 1954 film and the 1984 film, and the 311 earthquake and tsunami and the Fukushima disaster propelled that movie forward. The hero of the film was directly connected to the man considered to be the hero of the Fukushima part of the disaster. To say the least, Shin Godzilla was a lot of talking. But the original Godzilla had a lot of that too. This was meant to be a monster brawl movie though. But it also has a lot of talking and possibly too many characters. And that's one thing that I've said before on Kaiju Vision is I wish that America would make a Godzilla movie that's in the range of 85 to 105 minutes long. You could have crammed a whole bunch of action into it and then make it like this leaner, meaner kind of movie. Because if this is about the monster battles, then you make the whole last half hour, even 40 minutes, just pure action and then just trim the fat down. We had plenty of time to get to know all the characters needed in a lot of these older classic Toho films. There is one problem with having a family divorce kind of story along with an ensemble cast at the same time. The family end of it demands more time to establish characters that the audience care about, while the ensemble cast demands more time because there are all these people who have to say their lines. It's possible to do both, but this is kind of a zero-sum game here. The more time you give to the non-Russell family characters, the less time you have to give to the family drama side of the story. It's a tough situation. I feel like Godzilla 2014 had a better sense of balance because that had the family drama and the ensemble cast too, but it was more within its means because the ensemble cast was smaller. But Michael Darty referred to the long cut of this as Godzilla the miniseries, and that's because probably the ensemble cast had a lot more lines. This is way different from the divorce story in the 1992 Godzilla film, too. That's a more realistic divorce story, too, though, actually. And they actually act bitter towards each other. The ex-wife was actually pretty funny. And as I've said, the editing of this film is what removed some of the tension that was removed that, talked, that got talked about in these reviews. It's the end of the world, after all, that's going on. But does it feel like it? I sometimes wonder and question why an almost three-hour-long Godzilla movie got made in the first place. I had problems with the length of Godzilla 98, too. I thought that was way too long, considering the content, that level of content that was in it. The dialogue in this movie is interesting. It's almost like part 90s throwback, part comic book. So in this movie, there was a group writer's room, brainstorming a lot, getting this treatment put together, kicking ideas back and forth. And this was said in some of the interviews with Michael Doherty. And this, this whole writer's room thing was taken from the TV side of things. Sort of nobody's wrong, testing the waters. And the director viewed the writer's room as a positive. Some of the comments on the articles about this movie, though, they said stuff like, tell me one Godzilla movie that has good characters or plot. Uh, okay. How about Godzilla 1954 with the love triangle, every character involved in that? Godzilla vs. Gigan, 
Gengo Odaka, and his friends. Those are actually pretty cool characters. Ebira, Horror of the Deep, the character Yoshimura, who is played by Akira Takarada. That's a pretty good character. GMK, the relationship between Yuri Tachibana and Taizo Tashibana. Incredible. Godzilla against Mechagodzilla. Akane Yashiro. Great character. Shin Godzilla. Rando Yaguchi. Great character. The Last War. I know it's not a Godzilla movie, but The Last War. Mokichi Tamura, who was played by Frankie Sakai. Matango. A whole bunch of well-drawn characters there. Getting back to Godzilla movies, though. Godzilla vs. Megagirus. Kiriko Tsujimori, the first modern female main character in a Godzilla movie like that. And Hajime Kudo with the Cubs hat. Such a well-drawn, memorable character. And speaking of characters, it doesn't matter what all these characters are, if they're weak or strong or whatever in this movie. The actors, it's not their fault. None of it is. All these actors are pretty good. They do a good job. If this is not... This is not like Godzilla 98, where you just had a cast that couldn't do it, even though no actor could, but they couldn't either. That is not the case with this movie. Another movie that this reminds me of is Godzilla 2000. And I said how Godzilla 2000 is one of the weirdest Godzilla movies, because the humans should be trying to get rid of Godzilla, while that movie had a guy and his little girl tracking Godzilla and advocating for him. Fast forward to this movie, and we have Monarch, which is like a completely crazy budgeted corporate version of this man and his little daughter from Godzilla 2000. The guy and his daughter were like the most primitive form of Monarch ever. And Monarch is protecting the Titans, advocating for them, even letting them loose, making sure the government can't do much of anything to get rid of them saying the destruction that they caused is planetary renewal, etc. The only human I can relate to the most is Mark, but everyone else is interested in being Godzilla's pets. I think it is the sort of moral ambiguity in Godzilla 2000 that makes it seem so strange. I'd rather have the ambiguity be about how humanity caused Godzilla at the same time they're trying to get rid of him. The humans in those movies that are in love with Godzilla are pretty weird, though. Dr. Sarazawa is way more in love with Godzilla than that guy and his kid in Godzilla 2000 were. Monarch was a little better when their job was containing monsters, and they did a really bad job of it. But now they just sort of gave up their job, and they're just advocating. Sarazawa is rather interesting. In the original Godzilla movie, Sarazawa activates the oxygen destroyer to kill Godzilla and himself. In this one, Sarazawa volunteers to suicide bomb Godzilla in order to revive him. He essentially worships Godzilla. He kind of has his own sort of religion going on. He calls Godzilla old friend. One of the reviewers said Sarazawa's relationship with Godzilla deserves its own movie just because it's sort of bizarre and you keep wanting to peel back the layers and see what's in there. When Sarazawa is asked how many nukes Monarch has, he almost seems sort of excited, which is sort of funny. Like, Sarazawa's Godzilla's super fan. When critics mention Messi's story and character motivation, you know what scene they're really talking about. 
It's Emma's mass extinction speech. When I saw this movie on the very first day on Thursday that it came out to the public, one Godzilla fan in the audience that I was with at that premiere actually said, what? During the speech. And I could tell this was an issue. It's so amazing that many of the reviews about this movie do not call specific attention to this scene. Yeah, spoilers, I guess. But the reviews that did mention it dealt with it well. The whole, I must kill off all but a small percentage of humanity to save Earth in order to honor the memory of her son part. This is possibly the most out-there action any character in a Godzilla movie has ever taken as far as character motivation. And I don't include the people who are aliens or who are under alien control or some other kind of duress. And it's not about plausibility with me, because plausibility isn't really the name of the game with kaiju movies. If at the end of her speech, an alien popped out of her body a la Final Wars and said they're invading Earth and using the Titans to do it, I would have thought, oh, that explains everything with the character motivations and it makes everything understandable in this movie. And it's actually more plausible (laughs) than what this is. But it's so inhuman, though. And there was a Screen Rant article about the secret villains in this movie. And I read it along with many other things that I read and watched in the preparation in the two years that we had to wait for this movie to come out. There was a bunch of stuff in this article that totally got it wrong about what actually ended up happening. So the article said that it was likely her saying this under duress, the whole we are the infection stuff in that trailer. This article said that it was likely her saying this under duress because she had been kidnapped by the eco-terrorists. Well, that would have made the story more logical, too, if she was under duress. But she's not. And the Screen Rant writer didn't actually know that she was the mastermind of this, that she was the one who went to Alan Jonah, not the other way around. If this movie was a Toho-style Godzilla movie, truly imitating Destroy All Monsters, we could have Emma brainwashed, mind-controlled, to say the whole I want to cause a mass extinction of the human race speech. It would have made more sense. Instead, it's because she is so grief-stricken that she is driven to this level of Typically, when someone says they couldn't be more sane, they have issues with maintaining their sanity. One of the, in- one of the comments on one of the reviews that I saw about this movie referred to this speech as her I'm a stable genius speech. The reason Emma's decision is indefensible as well as nonsensical is that she doesn't have the right, and her thinking grief gives her the right is beyond insane. It's a very comic booky kind of plot, though. It's, it's a plot device that's used in other movies, the whole Thanos thing with, yeah. But this is Bond supervillain territory, too, and I'm a big Bond fan. And wow, she, she totally fits into a Bond supervillain, rather, mold. The film should have showed the struggle that Emma had about her decision, maybe, some more. It's treated so lightly, the whole decision-making part. And the speech just doesn't cut it. And in the interview with Michael Doherty, one of the interviews, he said that the scene was a hard scene to film. And it was so much so that he used comic relief in order to try to just lighten things up during this scene when they were trying to film this. 
And he got a scene from that Geisha movie that Ken Watanabe was also in. He had that pop up on the screen and everybody's like, uh uh-huh, you know, and it's sort of like trying to diffuse some of the sort of tension that was on the set. The Emma Russell speech also went through several rewrites. I can tell. I don't believe the rewriting helped as much as it could have, but it probably did help some. No actress would be able to pull this off. This is totally not Vera Farmiga's fault. It's the script and just the setup of the story and the fact that this plot device is sort of, you know, the whole, I'm one of you, but I betrayed you thing. The moral question in this speech is all about what's better, humans or Mother Nature? But instead, the result in the theater that I witnessed was, what? And this movie is really missing an alien invasion, meaning actual alien people, not just Geeter, who's technically an alien. Aliens would have had much better explanations for Emma's actions. Also, after repeated viewings of this movie, I noticed that her speech is a little bit unintentionally funny. You know, if someone came up to me and told me, you are the infection, my response would be, what am I supposed to say that? I know you are, but what am I? You know, because these people are exhaling the same carbon dioxide that I am. And that's what's so weird about watching people like this talk this way, because they look like such hypocrites. They're like, you humans, you're so wasteful. But just like in this movie, there's something mentally wrong inside them, which is more there is with that than anything else. Like I said in the Godzilla 2014 episode, Monarch I'm sort of lukewarm on. It's because Monarch is too complex and it takes a lot of time and story space. Formal kaiju management organizations, it sort of makes us ask more questions than they actually answer. It makes me pine for the simplicity of stuff like G-Force and other related groups. I find it funny that Monarch at the beginning of this movie is telling the U.S. government, don't make us a branch of the military. But the thing is, Monarch also acts and behaves like they already are a branch of the military anyway. The military and the U.S. government has this insane idea that they should get rid of things that kill lots of people and cause devastation. But they're the only ones in this movie that want that, really. And Mark is sort of on their side, but not as much. Monarch is in the business of protecting them. And sort of the like ultimate fetishistic experience in this movie is being able to touch the kaiju with your bare hands. But also, touching the monsters like this, is this not something a Gamera movie would do? Sirizawa says we're Godzilla's pets, and he sort of sounds like the anime trilogy, the way things are set up in that. We're his subjects, and he does whatever he wants. We, the, he, the titans are above us. Monarch is a super well-funded organization, too. They're accountable to seemingly no one, and they even have their own nukes. Wouldn't average Americans view Monarch as, like, a bunch of eco-terrorists themselves? And, of course, the other thing that Monarch has is the Argo, which is utterly insane. You know, like, this this thing's so much bigger on the inside than it is on the outside, and, and then it looks like a B-2 bomber, and it has no bombs in it either, but... Somebody said that it resembles the Super X-3 from the old Godzilla movies, and I was like, you're not helping that situation. For some reason, I think Monarch should be more incompetent. Maybe that's what it is. Like, there should be varying degrees of incompetent. I don't think they should look stupid, necessarily, but I, I do want them to fall flat on their faces because nothing they do works. Sort of like the Heisei movies. Everything they try to make it better makes it worse. But in a movie like this, I'd like to see some of the comedy come from them just 
failing. So that way, Monarch would actually be comic relief in a different way. It's just an idea. Okay, now some more critical things just to get it out of the way towards the end of part two. The double snap zoom on Rodan is kind of ridiculous. I'm not a big fan of snap zooms anyway. It comes from, I believe somebody traced it back to Attack of the Clones, which is a Star Wars Episode 2. And also the, the shaky cam didn't really get much out of that. There are lots of shots in this movie of people looking. While I usually don't mind this, it is a very Spielbergian thing to do. It does happen a lot, and we got the point. And I believe it's totally possible to say that the monster designs are amazing, while at the same time saying that I wish the monsters were filmed better. The scene with the osprey that's landing inside the Argo, that whole scene there, it has nothing to do with the monsters, and I struggle to find out why that was necessary. It's kind of like the railroad bridge scene from Godzilla 2014, where I was like, in that episode, I, I said, I don't exactly know why this was necessary, but... Many people have mentioned how the oxygen destroyer doesn't really go anywhere and it's inconsequential. I'm, it's kind of hard to argue against that. I did hear from some people that the gonorrhea joke when they were talking about Ghidorah was forced and maybe didn't land correctly. Especially the first day that I saw this movie, and the day that it came out, Thursday of that weekend, I was actually surprised to see how some of the dialogue was unintentionally funny, and how some of the humor actually fell flat to like the most receptive and excited of all of the crowds that saw this. One of the unintentionally funny things in this is when... Emma Russell says to Madison, we talked about this in regards to the mass extinction of the planet deal. Red Letter Media did notice this as well as me. I thought it was hilarious that they said this, but the part of the beginning with Mothra starting to kill those people and getting all angry and upset and Emma Russell saying, stop scaring her is, is just... <laughs> I love that. I that was definitely unintentionally funny, I think. I, maybe maybe it was intended, I don't know, but <laughs> I thought that was funny. Madison getting away with the orca out from under the noses of all these people is kind of hilarious, very Hollywood thing to do. Um all these henchmen that are with Alan Jonah, they all decide to take a group bathroom break or whatever, and I think that's just great. I heard a couple people mention this one too. It's hilarious how Madison is hit by this huge piece of concrete as she's running away from Ghidorah's gravity beams, and she keeps running after she gets hit by this like it was nothing. I think it's so Hollywood. I I'm not surprised at all that a movie from Hollywood does that, but it's just hilarious. All these things that are unintentionally funny, they actually get funnier the more times you see this movie. <laughs> her coming back to life too, Madison coming back to life after being unconscious and presumed dead is unintentionally hilarious. The fourth time that I saw it, it was actually the funniest one. And the way that she comes out of it, and it's totally not Millie Bobby Brown's fault. It's just the way that the whole thing is set up. Like I said, none of this is the actors. None, it's not you, Millie, but it's just different. It's just the movie. And, the part when she comes out of this unconscious thing and she's like, 
And I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> that it's funny. After a while, it's funny. If other people in the movie theater were laughing too, it's, it's just kind of funny. And at the end, after she comes out of that, it's, it's sort of just chalked up as, oh, she was dead, but now she's not. Lastly, I want to see this movie with the Japanese dub really badly. Like, Watanabe, he does his own Japanese, obviously, in that version. But I think with all of the Toho feel of this and the way the humor goes, too, I want to see the Japanese dub of this movie. Because I think it might help. It might actually make it seem more like a classic Japanese Toho movie with a huge budget. So I really want to see this. I'm looking forward to it. I want to see what I think of it, and I want to see what other people think of it, too. That concludes part two, and I'll move on to our related topic. You're listening to KVR Kaiju Vision Radio. In part three of the podcast, I will be analyzing a topic that was either brought up in the film or was going on at the time of the film's release. And the topic is eco-terrorism and climate change. And I say that is topic because it's sort of like the union of things in between those. Also, I've already talked about extreme weather. That was in episode 13, which is for Son of Godzilla. And in episode 25, Godzilla and Mothra, the battle for Earth, the topic was environmentalism. So check out both of those because they both in a way apply to this as well. So Cli-Fi, Climate change fiction is kind of liberal, consistent with what the director said about the war on science. He said that this is about the appreciation of science in a time when science is being denied so much, effectively. America has a well-documented polling history of skepticism about climate change and global warming science. This movie addressing this issue is a clear indication that this movie is at least a little bit political about things. Political issues and political commentary are common in these Godzilla movies. Regarding the catastrophic effects of climate change, there has been an increased awareness in America that climate change is making extreme weather. The kaiju in this movie frequently bring natural disasters with them. Dust storms, hurricanes, rain, etc. The film is very much changing the program for how environmentalism is used as a device in the Godzilla series. We've never been quite this literal about how disasters follow the kaiju. Climate change and extreme weather is a major source of anxiety to people who have been affected by it. In the American Midwest, where this show is headquartered, we're experiencing the wettest spring in 40 years. Farmers have been unable to plant their crops, and so it's affecting a lot of people and causing disruption to our lives long term. Wetter weather in the Midwest is one of the results of climate change, and when it affects you, suddenly it's more real. There's not much that we can do regarding what nature decides to throw at us, and that's part of what's going on in this movie. We're at the mercy of the weather, just like we're at the mercy of the Titans. What about the choice of climate change and disasters fueled by climate change for this movie? We've been told the Earth is going to end in 2050. Extreme weather is supposedly getting worse. There's a sense of urgency about the issue that's increasing. The first Godzilla movie had anti-nuclear sentiment pervading it, 
and there have been many environmental issues and themes in Godzilla movies for decades. So, shouldn't we update that in this Godzilla sequel? Well, that makes a lot of sense. We're definitely on the cli-fi side more than the sci-fi side. I feel like if the disasters had more gravity, it would have helped. A lot of people in America have gone through disasters of various kinds, and I just don't get that level of helplessness that I did in 2014. This movie also reminds me a little bit of the movie Geostorm, which was made by Dean Devlin. I saw that too, but in, in the CGI end of it. Sort of the tornadoes are all over the place. You don't just want one tornado coming at you in CGI. It has to be like three or four of them all in the same frame going on at once. Quite a few U.S. states now have laws that define ecoterrorism, and they stipulate special penalties for those crimes. To put it simply, ecoterrorism is a violent act that is carried out to make people change their minds about the environment and the damage that's caused by human activity. Like a lot of terrorism, ecoterrorism is a political act. These acts of terrorism can be against people or against property. Ecoterrorists believe that nature should have rights of its own, just as humans do, and that there should be much stricter laws regarding human activity that damages the environment. Regarding two of the most well-known terrorist groups and their goals, they're the Earth Liberation Front, or the ELF, and the Animal Liberation Front, or the ALF. These organizations are by their own design unorganized. This is because they only have a press office, and that press office is disconnected from the people who individually, or as a part of a terrorist cell, commit unlawful acts. So their own press office doesn't know who these people are. They are leaderless groups that define themselves as a leaderless resistance. They do have a common philosophy, which is what unites them in purpose. Some targets of the Earth Liberation Front include the following. Development of multi-million dollar homes, presumably luxury homes like McMansions, as well as condos. The logging industry, uh, which uh, that's where the tree spiking comes from, a method that's used to prevent logging. The energy production and extraction industry. Industries associated with genetics, such as bioengineering firms that make genetically modified organisms or GMOs, companies that make and sell SUVs, and research labs, both private and at universities. But this is by far not an exhaustive list, because it is really anything that they believe is harmful to the environment. A word I really hadn't seen before doing this research is ecotage, which is a portmanteau of eco and sabotage, which is a good word to describe these acts. Vigilante acts of what's also called monkey wrenching, a term from an environmentalist fiction novel that simply references minor or otherwise acts of vandalism in the name of environmental causes. Economic damage is a primary goal because they consider profit motive a huge reason for why all of the environmental degradation is taking place. For the Animal Liberation Front, it's a lot of the same philosophy as, as the ELF, only it's concentrated against industries that profit from what they deem is harm to animals. So the animal testing industry is a big target of the ALF. This includes freeing of animals and also acts of arson against facilities. They are also against fur farms and the fur industry, factory farms and research facilities, including those at universities and private companies. Both of these groups, the ALF and the ELF, say that they are not violent against people. And if someone is committing violent acts against people, then it is definitely not part of the ELF or the ALF. Alan Jonah's groups in this movie is the most extreme group of eco-terrorists in a big-budget movie that I've seen in quite a while. Or maybe they're better described as eco-anarchists. The thing is, he's also a rogue capitalist in that he sells the DNA of titans to get money. 
which presumably helps fund his operations. They are engaging in guerrilla warfare with a religious level of zeal regarding their radical environmentalist mission. Ellen Jonas says he's seen enough of humans in his previous career as a militant mercenary. So he's had enough of humans and their nature, and so he's doing this to reset Earth and renew the planet using the Titans. His philosophy and the philosophy of real-life eco-terrorists are quite similar. All eco-terrorist groups, by committing these acts that they do and having the philosophies that they do, means they have given up on humans to fix themselves with regards to the damage that humans have against the environment. Just like Alan Jonah, they've given up on humanity, and they've seen enough, and now they're going to do something about it. So you say that nature should have rights, and nature obviously doesn't have very much rights, then you have the moral, sort of quasi-religious obligation to defend nature. So that's the gist of the philosophical part of this. The thing is, there are other laws in the books that define criminal acts, and no average people are exempt from those laws. Considering the acts are usually non-violent against people and mainly target property, these long, up-to-life sentences are quite stiff. Since terrorism became much bigger of an issue to governments in 2001, eco-terrorist groups have been lumped with other extremist groups in anti-terror laws, particularly in the United States. So because of what al-Qaeda did, this gave the government an opportunity to monitor and crack down on domestic terrorist groups. So when acts of eco-terrorism occur, there are federal laws that are broken in addition to state laws. One of the biggest federal eco-terrorism actions was called Operation Backfire, and I remember reading about this actually. It was an investigation by the FBI that specifically went after eco-terrorist groups and individuals. This operation mainly involved the Animal Liberation Front and the Earth Liberation Front. This operation took place in the mid-2000s. 18 people were indicted for eco-terrorist acts. One of the biggest events that brought on this operation was the 1998 arson of a Colorado ski resort by a group called The Family. This is a name they called themselves. They committed acts on behalf of the ALF and the ELF. They were considered a terrorist cell by the authorities. About 25 crimes and $48 million in damages from arson, vandalism, property damage, and animal releases. The acts took place between 1995 until 2001, when the group disbanded under pressure of various investigations. Just last year, one of the targets of Operation Backfire was arrested. He had fled the U.S. in 2005 and was caught in Cuba trying to board a plane bound for Russia. There is only one person remaining that the FBI is looking for from this operation. Getting back to Alan Jonah, he could be considered a militant anarcho-primitivist due to the fact that he was so radical that he wants to get rid of nearly every human, but also the industrialized world that has created all of this environmental damage. The key term that I latched onto in my research was rewilding. It's the unmaking of industrialized and domesticated society, returning Earth to its natural state, going back to the land and the supposed sort of state of perfection. And if you saw the movie, this is strikingly similar to what Alan Jonah's ultimate goal is. He wants to use the Titans, including Ghidorah especially, in order to get rid of nearly all humans and bring Earth back into ecological balance. Maybe there will be content on the Blu-ray that has more of Alan Jonah where we learn more about his philosophy, but this is particularly what I think is going on. This philosophy also reminds me of the Unabomber Ted Kaczynski. His view was that industrialization was the biggest mistake humanity made because technology is the worst. He viewed technology as detrimental to human dignity and that it eats away at human freedom. His big enemy was large-scale organization. He believes humans to be incompatible with nature and therefore engaged in acts of terrorism for nearly two decades. 
Three people were killed in these attacks and 23 were injured. He thought that only violent revolution could undo the damage. We are the infection is an overly dramatized extremist way of saying that, but what Emma Russell says is not far off from what Ted Kaczynski was saying. Ted Kaczynski received life imprisonment for the acts he committed, which were mainly against people in the tech fields of business and education. He mailed pipe bombs to them mainly. Witnessing environmental degradation was one of the biggest things that caused him to go as far as he did. Are either Ted Kaczynski or Alan Jonah leftist eco-terrorists? Kaczynski actually wrote against leftist activists, and Alan Jonah has the background of a mercenary, so there's nothing in his background that would indicate he is a leftist, really. As a result, there are plenty of similarities between Ted Kaczynski and Alan Jonah. But, whether you're a leftist engaging in acts of arson or vandalism, or if you're Ted Kaczynski or Alan Jonah, they have plenty in common. Violent acts against people or property based on believing that you're advocating for and protecting the environment from humans and their collectively destructive ways. These are all eco-terrorist groups. Radical eco-extremism can be accompanied by other forms of political extremism of many different types. Getting back to Emma Russell, that's what's so amazing with this story, is that it's her internal guilt is what drives her to do what she does. Eco-terrorists are also largely motivated by guilt. They see all the environmental degradation, and they believe everyone should feel as guilty and responsible for the environment as them. They didn't know the extent of what they see as the damage of what society causes. And so it's like one day they see just how bad it really is environmentally on the planet, which is bad. And then they see the huge amount of harm that humanity's caused. So as a result, they're driven to say that humanity as a whole have committed a crime. But it's not a crime that's on the books because it's a collective crime. And so, therefore, it's sort of like degrees of sin. And with eco-terrorist groups, it's, you know, the end justifies the means. Committing arson and then saying, well, nobody got killed is a great excuse because you went to that research facility that works on animals or whatever, and you freed the animals or whatever, and then you burned down the facility. But the thing is, no human actually got killed and they actually were responsible and made sure that that wasn't going to happen because they didn't want to be responsible for that. In their mind... It's okay to do that. Emma Russell believes she's absolutely in the right when she says that Earth's population needs to get cut down by 99 point whatever percent. So what is this movie saying about eco-terrorism and the mindset? It seems that the story is telling us that this kind of thinking is monstrous because Madison says to Emma, you are a monster. And Emma wants to save the memory of her son by, well, killing a whole lot of children that are, well, just like her son. She believes herself to be so humane that she does things that are inhumane. Her saying, I've never been more sane in my life, is a clue that these actions that she's taking are clearly insane. However, wanting to protect the environment, wanting to protect animals, is not insane. The whole redemption thing in the story, I don't know if that really works for her because... By the time she realizes her actions aren't right, the damage has been done. It's a classic Pandora's box. If you are of a certain political stripe, though, you might be a little annoyed by this movie because of the way the monsters are treated as these wondrous creatures. They're so destructive, but nobody can bring themselves to dislike them. 
It's like a non-judgmental thing, you know, touching them and everything. And the movie is arguably political with all the environmentalism. That is to say, if you're a certain political stripe, I can't expect everyone to think this, but I did see that complaint. One of the reviews actually called this movie touchy-feely. The director's concern for the war on science is also relatively liberal. The end credits with Godzilla renewing the environment and the kaiju and the restorative radiation and all that, that also stands out as, as other examples of some pretty strong environmentalism. The thing is, though, many Godzilla fans are used to environmentalism and the anti-nuclear message of these Japanese Godzilla movies. So if this bothers you a lot, then a lot of these Godzilla movies bother you a lot. So regarding science, how is science treated in this movie? In a lot of the early Toho movies, they were about scientists saving humanity from things. Invasion of Astro Monsters, a big example. Or the Mysterians. Then in the Heisei series of Godzilla, that was more about science being used by governments, as well as nefarious actors. And often, the science causes things to get worse, not better. In the Millennium series, science creates amazing things. Black hole guns, Mecha Godzilla out of Godzilla's bones, but Godzilla can't be defeated, and Mecha Godzilla has a major identity crisis and ends up killing itself. But in those movies, science was still used as a way to eliminate Godzilla and save humanity. In this movie, some scientists have some real issues. Emma and others decide that containment of the Titans isn't worth it and that they should just be let out. Emma decides that humanity is unnatural. Not the Titans. Humanity is what's unnatural. Instead, humanity is an infection, and so they need to undergo a holocaust or whatever to get the balance back. So here we have science completely divorced, no pun intended, from humanity. Not about saving humanity. Instead, humanity is the problem. So science is divorced from humanity. Divorced from morality. Humans have sinned against Earth, and so they need to be culled, and a genetic bottleneck is just fine, even though that's what few people are left who'd still die because of that. So we have anti-human scientists. At least these aren't the people charged with watching the world's nukes, even though they have a few nukes. But imagine, though, the kind of mental ninja ability that it would take for nuclear weapons experts to say, eh, nuclear holocaust will eventually cleanse the Earth in a life-renewing, fiery inferno. We've often thought of kaiju as superweapons. Godzilla is a symbol for the atomic bomb, right? Scientists in this movie not only let all the monsters free, but they also revive Godzilla with nuclear weapons. I hate to sound cynical, but they're using nuclear weapons as tools, just like America used them as tools back then. Here's some more about eco-terrorism. These groups are very unpopular, like they're monumentally unpopular, virtually universally disliked by the public, people who commit actual acts of eco-terrorism. They're, they're not popular, and there's, there's no groundswell of uh, popular sentiment. In other words, the general public really doesn't sympathize. Media attention was a big motivation in committing acts of eco-terrorism. All this media manipulation involves getting your phone out and recording it, because if you don't see it, then it may as well have not even happened. The belief that nothing changes without violence or intimidation. Well, for one, that isn't true. This is a very simplistic statement. But the thing is, concerns are founded for the environment, but these terrorist attacks pretty much aren't. And when interviewed, 
people who were in these eco-terrorist groups, they talk about how they got radicalized and they talked about how they became part of a terrorist cell. Their own media organization doesn't even know who the members of the group are anymore because they're extremists, technically. The victims of these acts are afraid that they could be targeted. You know, that's what terrorism is. If you're building incendiary devices to set things on fire, you may be a terrorist. Washington cancels out things. It's the center of maintaining the status quo. Powerful lobbyists who are unelected have huge leverage over the Washington power structure. The inertia can be maddening. There's that part of your mind saying somebody do something. And once a big act of eco-terrorism occurs, the environmental movement sort of is like, okay, is this who we really are or not? And there's this internal assessment. Nobody got killed, quote-unquote. That really isn't a great defense. I mean, killing people isn't required to commit an act of terrorism. But the terrorist cell's job is to decide where to go next. Where do you go next? Do you go further in and do you start targeting people? Also, in eco-terrorist groups, usually when people are caught, they're offered the chance to plead guilty and testify and get a drastically reduced sentence, and they're usually taking the deal. They're, they're not the particular kind of terrorist that says, no way am I ever going to give up, blah, blah, blah. Now, I talked about deflation in Japan and all kinds of other issues, but of all of the issues that I've talked about in this whole show, eco-terrorism is pretty boring. Extremists are like all we ever hear about anyway, and maybe that's why I find eco-terrorism to be a boring subject, because there's so many other forms of extremism that everybody hears about all the time. As a result, I'm just burnt out on extremists. When all extremists are special, none of them are special. You just interchange the ism that they're an extremist for, and you just get a different kind of extremism. And it's like a wheel of fortune-sized wheel. You spin the wheel, and here's a different kind of extremism that we get to concentrate on for the decade. People concerned about the environment may have never had a bigger voice in the public consciousness than they do now. There are many politicians running in America now who are making climate change their absolute number one issue. And when you're a big advocate for an issue, having more of a public voice actually discourages acts of extremism and acts of terrorism because there are politicians that are willing to do what you want and who are signing you know, accords for climate change and for changing things, there's a disincentive for more terrorist acts to occur on this level. And this film is another thing that actually does that. It concentrates on an issue that a lot of people think are important. As always, I will give the GDP figure at the end of part three. In 2018, the GDP growth for Japan was 1.0%. I'd like to dedicate this episode to Michael Doherty. Thank you so much for giving us this amazing piece of American tokusatsu. The next episode of this podcast will be 1969's Latitude Zero. Like I said in episode 50 when I thought this was going to be the next episode, I hope that the Cesar Romero humor does not break me. It should be a very fun episode. I'd like to send a shout-out to our patrons, Kyoe Toshi, Sean Stiff, William Mize, and Eric White. Thank you for your support. I really appreciate it. Donating is worth it. You get the inside track to what's going on in the show, and you get to message me personally. 
If you'd like to send some feedback, I'd love to hear from you. The email address is feedback at kaijuvision.com. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Kaiju Vision Radio is available on Google Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Blueberry, TuneIn, Podcast Addict, YouTube with scenic videos, and on kaijuvision.com. If you like the podcast, please check out Patreon. I'm Brian Scherchel, and this is KVR Kaiju Vision Radio. See you next time.